When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Short, but important. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, we'll be dissecting all the topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the league and the cup over the past few days, while in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football, and this week it's two up top. That means leading the line around the captain's armband is Matthew. So Matthew, how have you been since we last spoke? Uh, it's been okay. Obviously, slightly disappointed with the way things worked out for Fulham on Friday night in the battle for survival. But it's an international break, which means you get to see Wales play again, which is all I ever care about these days. So, yeah, all's good on my end. Fantastic. And, of course, you're joined by Max this week. Max, a week off for you in terms of football, so almost an extended international break. How have you enjoyed your relative time off? Yeah, it's been a bit of a strange one because I feel like the, the the club football scene recently, you know, in the Premier League especially, has been quite intense and, you know, anger-filled over VAR and referees and decisions and all of that. So I look forward to kind of putting those complaints on hold and then instead be able to complain about um, the FA Cup and international football instead. So it feels like a nice break, and, you know, something different. Top man. Right, before we dissect the League and Cup action from the last few days, I'll do the social media bits, otherwise I'll be talking to the Abyss once more. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at DanTracy1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at RealFootballPod. And if you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. Talking of clubs, I'm delighted to announce that I'm now part of the UK's first ever sports podcast network. That's the Sports Social. That also means we've got our own podcast page. You go to their website, click their media player. It's not SoundCloud anymore. It's all about the social club. You can find me via iTunes still by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review so we move up the league table. Also, I need to mention my two content partners. If you like betting, go to betting.com. If you like thought pieces, go to nowsport.com. And the easiest way to find all the links is by going to linktree slash realfootballcast 
put a dot between the R and the E, and there's 10 podcast platforms for you to choose from. It's so much easier to listen to these days. Right, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? Let's go to the London Stadium in what was the most entertaining game of that short Premier League weekend. And Matthew, it's not often you look at a result and say, do you know what, that's two points drop for West Ham. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it is one of those situations going into the game, given where West Ham are in the table, they would have taken they would have taken a point. Because in their in their hopes for, you know, Champions League, I still think is probably a little bit beyond them. But in trying to get into the Europa League, they would have taken a point. But given the way the game progresses, when you're three 0 up against any sort of side, even if they are, you know, arguably better than you, once you go three 0 up, you expect to be able to see the game out. So yeah, absolutely a case of, a case of two points dropped in the grand scheme of things. And you know, given you know results elsewhere over the weekend, then you never know, it, they could end up being the costly ones. Well, absolutely. That's the uh, statement I was going to make to Max because in the grand scheme of things, the European race. You know, it'd be unfair to say that the Champions League ship has sailed because they are still in that race. But in the wider context of Europe, can they keep Liverpool and Tottenham at bay? Or is that result at the London Stadium going to be their undoing? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I don't think the the draw itself is necessarily going to <clears throat> preclude them from getting Champions League. I think what is more problematic is the confidence that will have taken a hit after that draw. Because, you know, Arsenal are a good team. Yeah, I mean, sure, they've been quite inconsistent. But they've had some good results this season. You know, they've shown they can beat big teams. And when they're really switched on, as they were in the second half, for example, you know, they can be really potent, um, uh, especially in, in attack. And, and you know, that, that was proven in the second half of the game. So, I, I you know, I, obviously West Ham would have wanted to win. But before the game, I think they would have probably taken... They would have probably taken a draw. And it's not the end of the world. I mean... Obviously, it's just, you know, seeing the one point um, is now in the context of being 3-0 up. They're now looking back on that as two points dropped rather than a point gained. But so, you know, if, if it was just a generic run of the mill 1-1, I don't think it would I don't think it would be that much of an issue. You know, one point is better than none. But it's the fact that they were 3-0 up and they kind of threw it away. Um, and, um, you know, West Ham have in the past been a, had a little bit of a weak spine and, you know, given away silly results and conceded late goals and, you know, thrown away points like that. And generally, they've moved past that this season. But the fact that they were 3-0 up and couldn't see the game out, I think that, you know, that, that will really frustrate David Moyes or really frustrate the players. And that will, that will give them a big confidence hit because they know... That they they're capable of doing it, but they but they just kind of threw it away in the second half of it. Not to detract from Arsenal's play, who, who were good as well, but yeah, th- their confidence will have taken a hit. And of course, those two points would have been helpful. But the confidence uh, being hit is is what I think is going to be the biggest factor towards them um, maybe dropping out of the top four if they do. Okay, then Max, I'll stay with you because on the basis of the game itself, West Ham were lightning fast, quick out the blocks, three nil up, and Jesse Lingard opened the scoring. And in a week where he has been recruiting the England squad. I think, really, that's a fair assessment of how good he is right now. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think I said on a, on a pod a couple of weeks ago that if he yeah. keeps up his club form, um, there's no reason he shouldn't be. And, yeah, I'm pleased to see him there because previously, and, and to, to, to a certain extent still, um, the England squad has been a kind of the, where, where all, all Southgate's proven players stay. And, and it's a bit of a cosy club and there's not much room for... Um, for players with really good club form to to break into that setup, and you could maybe say the same thing of Eddie Jones's England uh, squad in the rugby. Um, but yeah, it's really good to see him 
to see him there. And, you know, what, what a difference a new environment makes. Um, I was watching an interview with Jack Butland, um, who is at Palace, and you remember he was um, in playing in the Premiership for Birmingham regularly, you know, as pretty young guy, 1920, um, and was capped for England and a really, really bright prospect. And then, you know, moved to Stoke. I think Stoke turned down 15 or 20 million from Liverpool or something when he was doing really well. And then he kind of went down in the championship and lost all his confidence and was getting dropped for, you know, keepers with not the same pedigree that he had. And basically in the interview with Palace, he was saying he he moved out, moved away from Stoke, moved into Palace. And on his first day, he just felt like a completely different person in a new building, new environment. He didn't have that psychological weight of all the, you know, all the mental difficulties he'd had at the club. They were just you know, completely evaporated as soon as he went into a new place. And we're seeing that kind of transformation in Jesse Lingard because most people were saying, well, he's not even good enough to get in the United squad. You know, he's not even good enough to be named in the nine-man substitutes bench. Um, and given um, that United are a little bit weak in midfield at the moment um, with um, a lot of players out injured, I think maybe people are reassessing that view because he's he's gone to West Ham and he's completely transformed himself. He's just, you know... I don't know if he's decided, but he's always had that ability in him. Um, but he's gone there and now he's showing and he's proving on the biggest stage in the Premier League that he can still do it against big teams, that he's the guy that they should be passing to. He's the playmaker. He's the one that is improving everyone around him. And yeah, he, he fully deserves his England place on that showing. And yeah, it was a really good performance. So Matthew, staying with West Ham midfielders, Thomas Suchek scored at both ends, which was unfortunate to say the least. If that own goal doesn't go in, you know, regardless of the strike in the first place, but if Arsenal are 3-0 down at the interval, do they manage to get back to 3 all? I don't I don't think so. You know, it's it's one of the cliches, you know, the perfect time to score. And the fact that, you know, Arsenal managed to score when they did probably just gave them that, you know, that much needed boost, if you will. So yeah, Suchek, it's it's one of them it's one of the more unfortunate ones. Um yeah. So he but he can't but he can't blame himself too much i think over you know overall you know as i said once you're three and up on a team you don't want to put it down to just one individual thing there's a whole host of reasons that you can you can put it on you can put it down to the rest of the team you can put it down to refereeing performances maybe you could add down to a whole host of things but you never it's never just a one one incident well matthew i'll stay with you because of course there were two own goals in that game and i feel like i have massively jinxed craig dawson because since that rattle he's nodded two in the wrong end now Again, that's perhaps unfortunate. It's bad luck from West Ham's point of view. At the same time, from Craig Dawson's point of view, is that kind of like how Jamie Carragher and Richard Dunn always used to score own goals? Because they are in the right positions, but the ball is just bouncing off the wrong body parts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those cases, like, given the position he was in, he had to do something. So he couldn't have, he couldn't have just left the ball because I think there were a couple of players just coming in behind him. So if he leaves it, there's a chance that they're going to be able to they were going to be able to come in and score. So he's had to do something, as you said, just, you know, wrong place, well, right place at the wrong time. It's it's a crapshoot at that point. It could it could go over the bar. It could just clear into the penalty area. could go into your own net. But at that point, you've just got to take your chance. Well, absolutely. I mean, you'd be lambasted as a defender if you just left it. I mean, I remember Eric Dyer doing exactly the same at that ground when we played West Ham. The ball sort of went into that corridor of uncertainty, as they say, and he just left it, and then Antonio poached in and got the goal. So you have to throw your body in, into that mix to hopefully get the ball clear. But in this instant, it wasn't the case. 
Max, what did you make of Martin Odegaard's performance for Arsenal on Sunday? Do you think he's found his feet in the Premier League now? And because of that, do you think the Gunners are now going to try and sign him on a permanent basis come the summer? Uh, yeah, I think based on his performances so far, he has established himself and I would be very surprised if Arsenal did not try and sign him permanently. You know, it just shows that there is room in the Arsenal team for a creative playmaking number 10, which <laughs> which is interesting because the, the reason that they <laughs> excluded Mesut Ozil for years, even though he was their highest earner, is you know, was because Arteta was saying, oh, well, you know, he doesn't fit into our system. And I think that's kind of shown up to be a bit of a falsehood because now a creative playmaking number 10 has <laughs> has come into the team and they're playing him as a number 10 behind the striker in a 4-2-3-1, classic number 10 position. And, you know, there were obviously off-field uh, issues with Ozil as well. Um, but, you know, the, the, the fact that they were pretending it was just a, a playing issue has, has, has been shown up a bit now. But Erd Erdegaard has been a real revelation since he's come in. Um, his his pass to Chambers uh, in the build-up to that Dawson own goal was really a really, really nice touch. And it's one that doesn't really get, get spoken about because it was kind of the pre-assist. Um, and, you know, it was only a 15-yard 15, 15 pass. You know, he, he's not the new Zidane or anything, but it, it was just a really nice touch. He, he's got a really good footballing brain and he, he is really Arsenal's kind of player. Um, you know, I don't think he, for example, would fit in Liverpool's team or would, would fit in may, maybe some other teams. But the way that Arsenal play, and they've got, you know, those... They do give their attacking midfielders quite a lot of licence to roam around and, and switch around, you know, with Smith-Rowe and Saka and Martinelli coming back as well. So he's really well suited to Arsenal. And given how well he's played, he was, you know, the real conductor of Arsenal's attacking play. I'd be very surprised if Arsenal don't try and sign him permanently. Well, I think, you know, like, as you say, the answer is under their nose in terms of what they need. And it's funny how... They shipped out Ozil, they floundered a bit, they've kind of replaced him, almost like for like, and they're firing again on all cylinders. So, you know, football moves in strange circles, but I think Odegaard will be leaning towards a move to Arsenal, especially if Zinedine Zidane leaves Real Madrid, because they're new manager, new ideas and all that. He probably is better staying in North London. But let's stay in North London ourselves and the other club. Now, Carl and I discussed at length the week that Tottenham have had in detail, so I'll try and get a more short-form approach from the two of you. But Matthew, looking at Sunday, is it fair to say the win is welcome, but in no way does it absolve the disaster which was Zagreb and the North London derby? No, it doesn't. I, 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 it was uh, it was Tanganga on uh, social media yesterday to say, you know, what a way to bounce back. And I think in the grand scheme of things, a 2-0 victory against Aston Villa doesn't really <laughs> yeah. absolve you of what you did. It was like, the thing that came to mind is, I remember when John Terry scored for England in a friendly against the USA, like two or three weeks after he'd made that slip in the Champions League final. And the commentator was going on about, oh, redemption for John Terry. It's like, no, it what you've just done compared to what you did, they don't equate. So Spurs really needed that 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 bounce back just to just to at least steady the ship because if they'd have lost that game then there's just a continual spiral of oh my god now the season's really under control you know out of control but if you take a look at the Premier League table right now that result was huge for them because they're now only you know as much as the disaster of the North London derby and going out of the Europa League was they're now only three points off the Champions League places so if they'd have lost that game you know that puts them it gives them some light at the end of the tunnel, it's probably going to be very hard for them. I, it's very much the outsiders in it. But the fact they've given themselves some hope, 
after what was a bad week, it's it's done. So, it's got some redeeming qualities, but they're not totally redeemed yet. Yeah, as I said last night, it's just the first step out of ten. Whereas Tottenham, I think personally, have to win all of those last ten Premier League matches. So Villa is step one. There's nine to go. As you say, Matthew, you know they're the outsiders. There's work to be done. There is a chance, and when you've got hope, that's all you can sort of cling on to as a football fan. So that's what I'm doing. But I'd be very, very surprised if we did actually clinch top four. Just to... okay, hang on, hang on. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm curious. You'll know the schedule better than I would. Do you guys still have to play Chelsea? No, we've got uh, Man United, Everton and Leicester as kind of big games in that kind of swing bracket. But um, no, Chelsea's done and dusted. We lost both Chelsea of them. Chelsea's done okay, no worries. Yeah, so, you know, I don't think we'll get it. But obviously there's more that can be done in this season. Well, one other thing in this season. So, Max, with that in mind, the changes that were made on Sunday, seven of those from Zagreb, do you think that's a sense of Reno saying, sod it, I'm rolling the dice regardless and result be damned, as if to say, I know I'm off? Or was that more a case of punishing poor performance across the previous week? Uh, I think the latter, to be honest. I don't, yeah, I mean, it, he will know that even if it is a completely selfish move from him, just thinking about himself rather than Tottenham, he will still know that how he finishes at Tottenham will reflect on him for potentially the next job. And he'll know that if um, he loses his last seven games or something and is sacked in a, you know, in a cloud of uncertainty and annoyance and, and dire failure, that that will really reflect on him badly and it'll reflect on his legacy a little bit as a, a recent legacy, at least as a Premier League manager. And it will maybe make him a bit less likely to um, to, to potentially get get another very high level job, although this might be his last one anyway. Um, so I, I don't think he would have done the the former, um, but definitely the latter. I think he's just thought to himself, well, you know, previously I've been sticking by the the senior players, the established players, and he's just kind of ripped up that plan and he's gone right. Well, Aurier, Doherty, not good enough. You're not named in the squad. Tanganga, who's not even naturally a right back. I mean, he's quite versatile, but he said, yeah, Tanganga, in you go. Um, you know, Alderweireld, not in the squad. Joe Rodon, who's, what, 22 years old and has played about five Premier League games, in you go, see how you do. Um, and he's just kind of ripped up his um, script a little bit. He went <laughs> a Mike Bassett 4-4-2 um, <laughs> style with, uh, with, two, with two men up front, which is really refreshing to see. And, and in a way, I was glad for Vinicius that he kind of got off the mark. He's had a bit of a, of a torrid time, at least in the Premier League. Um, and yeah, just kind of ripped up the, the script, went for a whole new formation, seven changes, as you say, and they got a response. And I mean, sure, it was, you know, only Aston Villa in inverted commas, but it is it is a step. It is a step. It, it doesn't absolve the how, how spineless the previous performances were uh, against Zagreb in particular and in the North London derby. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a step there. And on the way there and Mourinho now has a bit of a blueprint for the rest of the season he knows that he's not necessarily tied to having to play uh, established senior players who aren't delivering for him and you know I, I think it's quite telling who was left out of the squad completely and who you know were at least in the squad um, because Lloris spoke after the match and Mourinho said that he didn't listen to the Lloris' interview after the Zagreb match because he was too mature, which was a bit of a, a strange thing to say. But, um, I mean, he, he will have seen it and he will and we will know that Lloris dug out a lot of the players and said, well, you know, a lot of them don't really care. They're not really fighting for the badge and that kind of thing. And, yeah, it was interesting because a lot of players who were involved in Zagreb were still 
in the in the match day squad, you know, like Ben Davis made it onto the bench, and obviously Kane was still playing, Larice was still playing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But a lot of players were completely dropped from the match day squad. And if you ask Mourinho about it, he'd probably say, "Oh, well, you know, they were rotated or they were rested because there's been a lot of games in a hectic period." And in a way that you know that's true, there have been a lot of games. But I think it was maybe telling uh, for for going forward in the future which players are maybe not so not so much part of his future plans. The fact that he completely dropped Aurier and Doherty, who are his only two, you know, senior established right backs at the club. Neither of them were in the match day squad at all. Um, and, you know, th- the same for a couple of other players as well. Um, so I think it reflects badly on the players that were left out because clearly there's an understanding um, with, the, with the senior players and the manager at Tottenham that some players really just aren't pulling their weight, but a step in the right direction. So, Matthew, do you think defeat in Zagreb is going to be the thing that ultimately sends Mourinho packing at the end of the season? Have we got to the point where it's now top four or bust? Is the League Cup going to be enough to salvage a third season? Or can he get away with finishing fifth or sixth? What do you think? I I think it really it depends because there's a lot of stories going around. It depends on who you believe. There was a story over the weekend, I think. I think, and I want, to, I want to give credit away, I think it was Matt Law in the Telegraph was saying that if Spurs don't finish in the top four this yes, season, was, then they are, yeah, that's it, done, he's gone, um, which, you know, puts an awful lot of pressure. Yeah, I, and I, I honestly do think that's the case because you could forgive him the first season to an extent, yeah, because he was brought in in like November, then, so he was always, to an effect, playing catch-up. But to have been in the position where Spurs were, you know, top of the table at some point, at one point, to then, you know, go out of the Europa League in the manner that they did, and to also throw away being in the top four, I don't think there's really, you, there's, there's, and it's not as if there's been a whole raft of injuries or suspensions or anything like Liverpool have with Van Dijk and what have you. It's to an extent all on Jose Mourinho this season, so. I, I tend to believe that one. If they don't finish in the top four, I do think that is him gone. You know, even even winning the League Cup and getting into the Europa League that way, no, I just don't think... Again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's some form of redemption because it's a trophy. It's you know ending the trophy drought that's gone on since 2008. But at the same time, if Spurs want to be ambitious and want to be, you know want to you know try and be the biggest club in London and all this and what have you, then the Champions League is a necessity. And if he hasn't delivered it after the time he's been given, then yeah, I I, I wouldn't blame them for um for getting rid of Jose Mourinho in that case. Well you make a very good point. Tottenham by and large have been full strength all season. So even if we finish six again, that's no progress with a much stronger squad. So even at its most basic level, that's not good enough. And also winning the Carabao Cup only gets you into the Europa Conference League, not even the actual Europa League next season. So it's not even the prize it was. So, you know, I think it is, as you say, Matthew, top four or bust. With that said, Max, Aston Villa, they're going to get a third season in the Premier League since their promotion next season. But they're such a different beast without Jack Grealish, aren't they? So how does Dean Smith address this? That's not to say that Grealish is off in the summer, but when you look at them, they are becoming the most one-man of one-man teams right now, aren't they? Yeah, very much, very much. Um, he, he's obviously just su- such a big miss. And I think they'd hoped that Barkley would be that player, at least when um, at least when Grealish wasn't fit and he could maybe take that mantle upon himself. And when they play together, Barkley and Grealish, um, they are really creative for the rest of the team. But 
I think, I mean, maybe I'm, um, maybe I'm hyping Barkley up too much here, but he, he is a really good, talented player and being around better players will improve him. So maybe when he plays with Grealish, he kind of plays to his full potential. And without Grealish, there aren't too many people there that are on his level, on his wavelength and, you know, able to you know, able to link up with him and, and, and play nice passes and things like that. The other side of the coin is that Barkley hasn't really been good enough with or without Grealish. You know, he, he, he showed flashes at the start of the season, but maybe not so much now. And in fact, even with Grealish out, he's still um, not in the team. And players like uh, Jacob Ramsey, you know, that, that teenager who's just kind of come through their youth system is playing and, and Morgan Sonson and Nakamba are playing ahead of him in midfield, which shows you that, uh, Dean Smith doesn't maybe trust him so much or his performances in training or in matches have fallen off a cliff a little bit um, and you know I'd be very surprised if Villa do make his move permanent now apparently there was a buy uh, a, a buyout clause in that uh, in, in his loan deal and so yeah they're really struggling without him I don't know what the answer is really because they, they've, they've strengthened in attacking midfield with um, Bertrand Traore and he's, he's a good player he's a talented player he, he's done well in spots this season um, but it's so difficult to kind of create, to recreate the impact that Grealish has on that team because he's just such a kind of uniquely individually talented player in the same way that I think it's going to be massively difficult for Palace to replace Zaha when he goes. And Grealish isn't going to stay at um, Aston Villa for his whole career. So really, you know, if and when he goes Grealish, um, they're going to need to spend all of that money, potentially even a bit more on getting two or even three top class players to kind of try and, mimic his style of play because there aren't even really many many players who are similar to him in the way that they play you know he's kind of languid socks down running style gliding gliding past people um you know winning fouls and all of that it's going to be so difficult so i'm really not sure what they're going to do but i hope they've got a plan because at some point he is going to leave uh, in all likelihood and they, they are going to have to replace him well the spell without Grealish with his injury is kind of like look into a dystopian future for Aston Villa because their form has been rancid without him. Obviously, the first half of the season when he's fit, they are where they are because of that. Obviously, they're kind of just dripping away now and they've sort of managed to absorb enough points to not be in any danger. But if you extrapolate that across the whole season, they're back to where they are last season. And Matthew, on Sunday, they had one shot on target. Now, is that because of them being so one note without Grealish or is that due to Tottenham's new look defence doing the job they were meant to? I think it's I think it's a little bit of both. You know, as I said, there's you no know, on the Spurs front there was some element of wanting to bounce back and try and improve things. But also I think that the Grealish factor, you know, can't be taken out of it. I was looking at it today um for work. I the forty six percent of their goals in the Premier League have come through either him scoring or him providing the assist. So that tells you when he's not in the team. I, it, it's pretty it's 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 obvious. Anyone can see it, you know, with the eye test, but the numbers back it up. When Grealish isn't in that team, they just aren't as effective. They just don't have that player to you know to break through the line or create a key pass or anything like that. So it's probably uh it's probably, you know, a little bit a little bit on both sides. But if you want to give, you know, if you want to lean it, lean it to one side or the other, I would probably say it would be Jack Grealish, you know, and, and his absence. I think he is just that he is that key spark that they need. And, you know, this season and these past couple of games are probably going to prove to Dean Smith that it's a bit of a wake up call to them to, you know, it, it just shows right. You know, whether or not we sell Jack Grealish is, is a totally different matter. But for next season. If Jack Grealish is injured or suspended or whatever, or just is having off day, 
then it just shows that we do need that extra player. So that's probably an area that we need to invest in in the summer. Yeah, I think you're right in the sense that it was more Villa being toothless than Spurs being amazing at the back. But in terms of Tottenham's defence, Max, it's similar to Liverpool's this season in that there's absolutely no cohesion. The difference is Liverpool obviously have so many injuries. Spurs, it's more a case of playing your way out of the team. With that said, how many more combinations can Mourinho work through? Yeah, (laughs) it's going to be difficult. I mean, he probably will have to work through a couple more. You know, I've seen stats about... Liverpool trying, you know, 17 different centre-back partnerships this season, which is absolutely outrageous. Obviously, that's been forced upon them because of injury. But at the moment, Mourinho is kind of trying to let players have a chance in the team. Um, And, you know, as you said, they're playing their way out of the team. You know, Sanchez has had spells in the team and played his way out. And then Dyer had a really long spell in the team and played his way out after a couple of penalties and silly mistakes. Um, Alderweireld seemingly has now played himself out of the team. Rodon played two or three games on the spin, um, I think a month or two ago. And then you know, he, he was out of the team for a little bit. Um, with Reguillon, I think definitely he is your number one fullback, 100%, and, and his performances warrant that. And Davis is number two. He's just obviously been in and out of the team a little bit with, with injury. But then every other position in your back four, uh, 75% of your back four is just completely up for grabs. You know, Mourinho doesn't know who he can trust at centre-back. Sanchez is prone to a mistake. Dyer is prone to a mistake. Alderweireld is getting on a bit. And Joe Rodon is inexperienced. And th- there's your four, you know, senior centre-backs, really. Um, and then at right-back, obviously, Aurier and Doherty. Doherty hasn't really taken to Spurs, especially playing in a flat back four. And then Aurier, we all know, has a mistake in him as well. So it's quite um, it's quite worrying for Spurs because on the face of it, they've got, you know, proven, in, uh, in inverted commas, prem- Premier League players and players on the European stage and everything like that. But Mourinho really doesn't know who you can trust. The only position I would say you have sorted at the moment is left back. And, you know, I think you can do a job with um, a couple of the players you have at the moment. I think Doherty's all right as a backup. Um, Sanchez and, and Rodon have, have definitely still got a little bit of potential. They're still fairly young. But I think you could see a lot of um, a lot of rotation, a lot of ins and outs in your defence. I think your midfield is pretty much sorted. And although you're a bit overly reliant on Son and Kane, you've got options in the attacking areas as well. Defence is, is the one area that really worries me. As a neutral, even, it worries me. Um, looking at it because he really just doesn't know who he can trust. Yeah, I'd echo those statements completely. I mean, you can't keep burning through combinations because, you know, it's like no one knows the partnerships or who's playing right back and you can't get that cohesion going and Tottenham are suffering because of it. But let's focus on the bottom of the table now and the battle to stay up. And Matthew, you'd have to say after the weekend's results, Brighton are the big, big winners of the weekend. Two on the bounce now in terms of win. And Graham Potter's men are finding their form at just the right time. Yeah, the, it was the definition of a six-pointer, it has to be said, at the weekend. And obviously, Brian came out on on, on the right end of it. Um, I think you do have to give credit to Brighton for the way they play. You know, you know, in the, you know, in the Fulham circles, we were discussing, you know, who would you rather have in the positions that you're in? And, you know, do you want to keep Newcastle down or do you want to involve Brighton and everything? Because there was a lot of talk that Brighton could because they didn't look all that great a couple of weeks ago they could drift themselves uh, they could drift themselves back in but two wins on the bounce and you've got to think now six points clear of safety 11 goal difference 
given the way that Fulham, given that you know, and a game in hand as well. If they win that game in hand, that's probably them safe. So yeah, absolutely huge, huge result for them. Um, and then yeah, so all credit to Brian for you know, I want to say making it less less exciting, but I don't think anyone wants a less exciting relegation battle. No, that's right. I mean, as long as there's at least two horses in the race, that's what we asked for. So Matthew, I'll stay with you. Obviously, you had a vested interest in that game. Newcastle will rank bad. There's no doubt about that. And there's clamour for Steve Bruce to get the boot. Are you a bit worried that with the international break coming up, Ashley gets an itchy trigger finger, pulls it and goes, right, I need a new manager bounce to get us clear of the drop zone? I do have that fear. But again, depending on who you listen to and all the various reports and everything, the sense is that Mike Ashley is going to keep hold of him for at least... At least the next game, because by the sounds of it, he still has faith in Steve Bruce to get to get them out of it. Now, whether or not that's the right decision, I I don't think I don't think it is. I, it, it's dead. It's it is it is dead man walking. I think when it comes to Steve Bruce, and it is just a case of you know when does that new manager bounce kick in, and are they going to have to wait until um, until they are you know in 18th below the dotted line before they actually decide right now is the time we have to do it. So it is a bit. Is a bit worrying, but I don't think it's going to happen yet. So long as Newcastle are above the relegation zone, Steve Bruce is safe. So with that in mind, Max, it's almost a case of Fulham, I guess, they'd love to be outside of 18th, but are they better being in 18th because then Steve Bruce continues to be the sitting duck and almost sleepwalks Newcastle into the relegation zone? I think I think that, that might... In a, in a kind of in a weird roundabout way, that might actually be quite helpful for them, as you say, because um, obviously Newcastle have that game in hand on Fulham. But if they um, if they don't win it, then they're very much within reach for Fulham. Even if they draw it, they'll be you know three points ahead still. But Fulham have got a better goal difference, and they're yet to play them at the end of the season. Um, and yeah, like, like Matthew was mentioning, um, I, I've also been hearing and reading that. Ashley is likely to stick by Bruce for the time being. I think long term, we know the writing's on the wall a little bit. And, you know, even if he does keep them up, they'll probably jettison Bruce for, for next season and get someone else in. Although I'm not sure who'd want to to go there, given the way that they treated Benitez. Um, but yeah, it's difficult because, I, yeah, I think, as you say, that there is a real chance that if... Um, Newcastle are still looking at that situation, thinking, "Oh, well, you know, we're we're we've got a game in hand on Fulham. We're still two points clear." They might just kind of be be sleepwalking into it. And at the moment, they're in free fall, and their performances are terrible, and all their attackers are out. Although I hear Wilson is going to be back after the international break, he'll make a big difference. But having a really good striker up front when you create one good chance a game still isn't, you know, it isn't going to solve all their problems. So possibly. If Fulham had theoretically won um, one more of their uh, last five games or something, and they were suddenly ahead of Newcastle, and the Newcastle were in the drop zone already, then that might be the the impetus for Ashley to to sack him, and then potentially get that new manager bounce. Um, although to be fair, um, you know Sheffield United have got a new manager and haven't had the bounce, or at least a caretaker manager and haven't had the bounce, and West Brom got a new manager and Sam Allardyce and haven't had the bounce. So even if Newcastle do uh, end up pulling the trigger on Bruce and getting someone new, there's no guarantee that he'll keep them up. But potentially, the fact that uh, Newcastle aren't yet in the drop zone could be a factor. Well, you mentioned you know Bruce getting the sack and who would want it, who would take it. 
there isn't really anyone at this stage of the season. I don't know if Graham Jones would get promoted as a caretaker, but you know who's going to take a job with nine matches to go? So the loyalty that Mike Ashley has offered Steve Bruce up until now might be his undoing come May. But Max, I'll stay with you because I want to send it back to Brighton now. What have you made of Danny Welbeck's offering for the Seagulls? I know injuries have shaved off a portion of his ability as a player in general, but do you think he's already done enough to earn a new contract on the South Coast? Uh, I think so. I think so, based on the fact that their forward options are pretty, uh, pretty limited in terms of, um, excuse me, in terms of scoring goals. Um, yeah, he, he's always been one of those weird players, Welbeck, that, you know, sometimes you watch him and you think, I can't believe you're a professional footballer. And then, you know, sometimes you watch him and, and you think he's, he's really good. And that's why he played for Arsenal and Man United. You know, he, he's had a lot of really good moments in his career. His goal scoring record for England, to be fair to him, is very, very good. <laughs> Um, even though he's played on the wing for a lot of it, which is probably not his natural position. Obviously, the only problem with him is his, is his fitness issues. A bit like Sturridge, I guess, quite talented, but maybe f- found it difficult to get a regular um, run in the team. And when he did, he impressed. And, you know, he's been playing up front for, for Brighton in the last couple of games. And he, he seems to have made a real difference because Morpé is all right, um, but he's not really a kind of hold-up player. Um, and he doesn't bring much to the team apart from pure finishing, uh, in my opinion. Whereas Welbeck is quite a good link man and, you know, holds onto the ball quite well. Um, decent target man, you know, can hold the ball up, can bring other players into play. And he has been the key to their attacking uh, resurgence in the last couple of games. Because Trossard, you know, is bright and lively and quick and skillful. And we know that. But then it, when it's just kind of him and Morpé or maybe Connolly up there um they they seem to struggle but the fact that they've had Welbeck up there in the last couple of games has really helped them and I think he has earned his new contract um although it'll be interesting seeing what Brighton do because they've got Percy Tao who's come back from a loan uh, abroad and he's looked really lively in the couple of appearances he's made and I think Brighton fans are a little bit disappointed that they haven't seen more of him given his performances in the you know, in, in the brief times he's had on the pitch. And also Andy Zakiri, the I think Swiss striker that they signed, the young guy, um, he hasn't really hasn't really had much of a look in. And so Potter might be thinking, well, Welbeck probably going to be on decent wages having having left, you know, a, a good team, um, even though he's a free agent. And so he might think, well, you know, maybe my striking core of Morpé, Connolly, Zakiri and, and Tao is going to be good enough for me. But probably based on performances... Uh, Welbeck is, is deserving of a new contract and if he gets released by Brighton I'd probably take him at Palace Well yeah I think it'd be harsh if he didn't get a new contract I think he's done enough and I think also you need I think really he's a senior pro at the club you know Lalana's another one I think they need to try to build a squad or a team around those kind of players I know they both have their own long injury list but if they can stay fit they can be an asset to Brighton as what we're kind of seeing at the moment but Matthew staying on the subject of Graham Potter I don't know if this is England rattle chat, but could you ever see him being the manager of the Three Lions? I think I could, but there's 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 a lot of people that are you know, like we talk about with you know the general squad. There are a lot of people that I think are ahead of him to take to take that role. I think arguably I think Sean Dyche is probably in, if you look at the the ladder or the hierarchy. I think Sean Dyche is probably higher up, up up the list when it comes to that. I still think Eddie Howe is probably higher up the list. You could make the argument, Chris Wilder's up there, Scott Parker is will be in the discussion at some point. I think there's a lot there's a lot of there's a lot of people in front of him at the moment and it's gonna take something 
drastic for him to. I don't think he can get the England job just keeping Brighton in the Premier League for you know X amount of years. He has to do something incre- incredible. Like I remember, like Steve Bruce was mentioned in the England chat. I think. Uh, around the time of the 2014 World Cup, because he'd you know kept Hull in the Premier League and took them to an FA Cup final, he'd done something impressive. What Graham Potter's doing at the moment, whilst the football might be somewhat entertaining and whilst keeping in Brighton in the league, is a is an achievement within itself. You'd think you'd got you got to at least think that the standards have got to be a lot higher to be the England manager than just what he's doing. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. He could be a manager in the future, but I think he's not there yet. There are people in front of him, whether that is Sean Dyche, whether he's fashionable enough to become an England manager, I don't know. But I think that's maybe more snobbery from other people because we look down on what Burnley do, but that shouldn't take away from what Dyche does. However, Max, some XG chat now. It turns out that Brighton, with them being 16th in the Premier League, have created more XG than Arsenal and Tottenham combined and have conceded less XG the Liverpool and Man United combined. So if you can sort of decipher that code, how much can we read into that in terms of Brighton's performance? And is it a metric that should be observed only on its own? Um, yeah, I love a bit of XG chat. Um, <laughs> it is. It, yeah, you need, you need to kind of view it in context. And those are really good, both attacking and defensive numbers. Um, but yeah, you do need to see it in context. And obviously, goals actually scored and goals actually conceded and you know their position in the table are also stats that don't lie. Um, and a lot of games this season, they've been um, you know on top in terms of possession and in terms of maybe chances created, and in terms of um, how many chances they're limiting the the opposition to. But at the same time, um, you know, uh, as good as those stats are, and as encouraged and enthused as the Brighton management will be by by those stats they also know that it's a crucial and difficult to measure intangible um factor that they can't see out games you know they they concede goals um when they shouldn't and they should score more and they don't and that's due to um it's not only due to bad luck you know if it happened once or twice that they'd completely dominated a team like, like, for example, in the in the um, in the Palace match, if, like when they really dominate a team and have loads more chances, and then you know the other team has two shots and wins two one. If that happens once or twice, you can say yeah, maybe a bit of bad luck. Um, but the fact that it's happened so consistently throughout his Brighton career, not only this season, even last season they were playing quite impressive football and losing. The fact that it's been such a prolonged period of time that this has been happening i don't think you can only put it down to bad luck and you know you do also have to say well they've obviously got a problem of bad finishing and they've obviously got a problem of maybe mentally switching off at the back and conceding goals as well in the few chances that they do allow the opposition and yeah um as much as as much as the way they play football is really good and they've got you know a lot of promising young players in a way i almost wish palace had the same kind of approach in terms of recruitment and in terms of the style of football they try to play a lot of stuff that potter does has to be you know rightly applauded at the same time you have to look at it and say something's not quite right there and maybe it's the personnel and maybe you know if you had the personnel at a better club or with more money um, he'd be able to impart that style of football a bit better and maybe start getting results as well. But the fact that they're down there is deserved. You know, the table doesn't lie. And the table shows that they haven't been good enough, even though their underlying numbers are very good. You know, that that 
in itself is not enough to keep you in the Premier League. You need to score goals and you need to stop the opposition scoring. And they haven't been good enough at either of those measures this season. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, as you say, it's the truest stats of GF and GA rather than XG, which is most important. You know, we can all sort of add these extra layers of context and build a better image of how successful a team actually is. But if you're not scoring enough and you're conceding too many, that's the currency for relegation. And they are on the right side of the the dotted relegation line at the moment and they probably will be coming into the season but I don't think we can always fall back on that XG and bad luck as a sort of symptom for why Brighton aren't getting results right let's go to Friday night now and Max I'll stay with you because Leeds come out on top now it's Pat- Patrick Bamford who usually gets all the plaudits but I thought Rafinha had a very good game and he's another player similar to Martin Odegaard who took a bit of time but he's taken to the Premier League with ease yeah, yeah, very much. He's obviously got loads and loads and loads of talent. And actually, um, I think Bamford said in an interview that, I mean, considering he, he, he arrived for 18 million, which is, you know, not that much in Premier League terms, although that might sound outrageous for someone who grew up in the 80s and 90s. Um, but 18 million, you know, for, for a proven Premier League player um, or, you know, for a good level Premier League player is not that much um, in the grand scheme of things. And yeah, Bamford said in an early interview, he was surprised that a bigger team hadn't gone in for him because he'd done quite well at Wren in, in his season there. But, um, you know, Wren were in a bit of financial trouble and accepted the offer. And he's shown that that is, you know, more than worth it. And I'd, to be honest, I'd be very surprised if he w- wasn't leaving for a bigger team in the next two or three years, not to disrespect Leeds at all. Um, but He's shown that he's got the talent. He's adapted really nicely to Bielsa's um, style of play. He's kept himself fit and sharp and healthy, which is unlike a lot of the other players that Leeds signed this summer for pretty big money. Robin Kopp and um, uh, Diego Llorente and Rodrigo Moreno. All of these players that they spent, you know, 10, 20, 30 million on have not maybe fitted into the team. And much of Bielsa's team is the team from the championship, which is, you know, to be applauded. But it shows how difficult it is to, A, adapt to the Premier League and B, adapt to Leeds and Bielsa's um, style of play. And Rafinha's done both really well. Um, to be honest, his his goals and assists this season should be higher based on, I know I was talking about bad luck with Brighton, but, I mean, if you're a winger and you put in five fantastic crosses and, you know, the striker or whoever gets on the end of them misses them all, um, that reflects on you badly because you've got zero assists. But he's been really good. And had Leeds been a bit more clinical, he would have more goals and assists. You know, he can take set pieces. He's fast. He can play on either side. He's skillful. I don't know if you saw the the skill he did on Gary Cahill um, in, the, in the match against Crystal Palace. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. Um, look it up if you haven't seen it already. Um, and yeah, he's, he's a super, super talent. And I don't want to big him up too much. It is, you know, relatively early days into his... He's only had less than one season in the Premier League, but he does look really good. And I can see him moving to a bigger team uh, in the near future. So, Matthew, in terms of the goals that you conceded, the first one come from nowhere, really, after Patrick Bamford thrashed it home. But did you think there was a foul throw in the build-up? I'm not sure if it was or just because of the way the camera angle was a bit awkward on that side of the pitch. Did you feel there was a bit of an infringement there? I'll be brutally honest. The, the foul... the the uh, technicalities of the throw have passed me by, I'll have to admit. I was more angry about the fact that we were switched off at the back, allowing Jack Harrison to um to snip in there. So I'll have to plead the fifth on that one, I'm afraid. That's right, mate. I just uh, It's only something I picked up. It's a bit of a, 
a left field question, but I thought I sort of saw it. And I thought, hang on, is that a foul throw? But it wasn't picked up on, and obviously it's cost you a goal. But I'll stay with you, Matthew, because you know, costing goals and all that. Fulham have just been masters of their own downfall lately. We saw it against Man City. It crept in again against Leeds. Obviously, the football's been better by and large over the last couple of months or so. But you can't have those bad habits creeping in at this time of the season. No, you can't. It's it's masters of our own downfall. There's problems at both ends, and it was you know arguably best best, best demonstrated with you know you no know, with the winner because we had a chance. I think it was Luckman yep. shanked his yeah shanked his shanked his opportunity, and I don't think it was it wasn't directly from. I think there was like a goal kick afterwards, but the the resulting play, then Rafinha goes up the other end and scores. And it, it, when you're down the bottom, those are the breaks that you don't need going against you and they just happen to go against us on that day you know yeah all credit to Leeds you know even Scott Parker said the Leeds were the better side on the day but the manner in which we lost you know if if we'd lost one nil and it was just you know the Bamford opportunity or if it was you know the marginal VAR and Luke Hailing if we'd lost that way I don't think any of us would have complained but the fact that we lost in the manner that we did with you know those two chances at either end sort of demonstrating that that's the real kick in the teeth Yes, the fine margins that we always mention. As you say, it wasn't an immediate switch from Lookman to Rafinha, but, you know, we're talking, what, 60 seconds, one to the other, and that's the swing of points and all that. But, Max, there was a key moment in that game before the actual first registered goal, and that was Luke Ayling thinking he scored his first ever goal for Leeds. The correct decision came about, all things VAR and all that, but was there a correct decision in him not being in the England squad? Or is that symptomatic of we've got too many right-backs at the moment? Um, yeah, um, firstly on the VAR thing, I think it was uh, just about the right decision. Um, although it was, you know, one of those VAR sides, it, you know, was correct in the end. But I was just a little bit sad to see um, the goal disallowed, just purely from the perspective that it was his first Premier League goal and how obviously elated he was. And you don't really see that um, emotion too often when someone scores. He was obviously so delighted and, you know, literally let his, let his hair down. <laughs> um and I, I mean, I'm sure he'll he'll score a goal at some point for Leeds uh, or or in the Premier League. But it was just a bit of a sad moment because you know he, he was obviously so um, so delighted with it. Um, but yeah, as I say, I'm I'm sure he'll score a Premier League goal. Um, the fact that he's been left out at the England squad, I don't think it was necessarily um, maybe snobbery from Leeds, although Bamford didn't get an either, and that was presumably a marginal call between him and Watkins. I think it's just the fact that England are probably as strong at right back as they are. Um, in in almost any other position. Okay, then I think we referenced the whole sort of operation last day for Fulham in the Newcastle note. So let's move on to the FA Cup and the quickfire round. You get two games each. So Matthew, you get to go to the King Power first. What did you make of Leicester's win over Man United? A defeat for United, which was summed up really by Fred's first half gift. Yeah, I think again it's one of these all credit to, all credit to Leicester. They have been fantastic this season. Showed there. But to some extent, there was some arrogance shown by Manchester United with with the with the side that they put up. You know, all credit to Leicester. You, know, you can only be what is in front of you, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, I think it was just a little bit of a kick in the teeth for Manchester United, especially because you know that that's one of their opportunities to win a to win a cup this season. You know, they've still got they've still got the Europa League, but at the same time, if you want to you want to have the FA Cup in your back pocket as well to end there. Yeah, trophy drought, which was 2017, I want to say, with the Europa League and League Cup in that season. 
four years without without a cup, you want to at least give yourself some opportunity. So Manchester United sort of shot themselves in the foot by with their team selection on the day. But yes, all credit to Leicester for their fantastic season. Now, Max, you get to talk about Man City's win over Everton. Harsh on the Toffees, harsh on Yao Virginia after a good performance. But I guess quality always shines through in the end. Yeah, yeah, very much. And I, I thought Virginia and Gold did a, did a pretty good job considering he was kind of chucked into it against, you know, one of the best teams in Europe um, and definitely the best team in England this season. Um, yeah, he, he did pretty well. So consequently, he was a little bit unlucky to end up on the losing side. Um, I wonder how how Pickford potentially also would have done in this situation. Um, a bit of an interesting thought experiment for me there personally. But yeah, um, yeah, City are just top top class really, aren't they? And even though they made you know quite a few changes, they were still able to to get over the line quite comfortably. And the quadruple looks like it's still on um, despite Pep's protestations. Yeah, I think it is, to be honest. Maybe that completes football for good. Who knows? But Matthew, you get to go to Stamford Bridge now. The blue juggernaut under Thomas Tuchel continues. Sheffield United showed a bit more grit, but in the grand scheme of things, nowhere near enough. Yeah, absolutely. It's, the game went sort of the only way you ever thought it was going to go. I mean, probably not with, with an own goal from Oliver Nord in the first half, but this game, this game was only ever going to go one way. So, not in, in terms of FA Cup Cup sets, this was never, never going to end any other way. And finally, Max, a good performance for Southampton at the Vitality. One that I guess is the tonic for their ailing league form. Also, they're going to be really pleased that they're paired with Leicester in the FA Cup semi-final. And I guess for neutrals, the prospect of a all-big six final is no longer on the table either. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I think the fact that um, yes, yeah, Southampton outclassed Bournemouth really, and their attack looked really good actually. And it was Gianepo and Redmond who got the goals. And they'll be really pleased because they were all nicely taking goals, particularly Redmond's uh, second, the, the, the third goal overall. Um, and both of those players have had a bit of a tricky time of it. You know, they haven't been in the side. Minamino's been preferred, even though he's just come in from Liverpool. Uh, maybe Armstrong's been preferred out wide. And Teller has been playing a bit more as well. And so Redmond, particularly, and Gineppo, who had been starters in previous seasons, um, haven't had much opportunity. So they'll be really pleased to get on the score sheet. You know, that'll get giving them a bit of confidence going forward. It was a really convincing victory considering um, their league travails. And yeah, obviously they'll be really pleased to get Leicester. Now Leicester are a really, really strong team and they showed that against an admittedly poor United. Okay, right. I think that's pretty much full time for this show. A little bit shorter, but obviously a little less football. So that'll explain that. So I just need to do the admin, which is a simple as thanking my two pod squad members this afternoon. Max, thanks for your time this afternoon. I hope you enjoyed that one. Yeah, very much so. Talk next week. Fantastic. And Matthew, top work as always. Thanks for wearing the captain's armband this week. No worries, not a problem. Fantastic. Cheers, guys. And also to the listeners out there, with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.